Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's Art Director. Today we have a special episode to address the climate crisis we find ourselves in. Climate Week NYC is currently underway, and today the UN Climate Ambition Summit is being held. To chime in on this huge issue, we've brought together works and interviews from three artists working in different mediums, all of whom have been addressing climate change in their art for many years. Joanne Hart has just released a book of short stories set in the near future called High Wire Act and Other Tales of Survival, which won the 2022 Hudson Prize. In April 2023, Alice Major put out Knife on Snow, a collection of poems that weaves together emotional considerations of climate change with science, mythology, space exploration, and daily life. And in March 2023, renewable energy writer and analyst John Atkinson released his solo album, Energy Fields, created from field recordings of coal mines, turbines, refineries, and animals from his residency at the U-Cross Foundation in Wyoming in 2019. I interviewed all of these artists separately, and in this podcast, I mixed their responses with pairings of their work, using John's music as soundscapes behind readings by Alice and Joanne. We're going to start the episode with a section of Alice Major's poem, A Fate for Fire from Knife on Snow, paired with a selection from John Atkinson's track, Spiritual Electricity from Energy Fields, which has already been underway during this intro. After that, we'll hear interview responses from Alice, John, and Joanne concerning the recent wildfires in Canada. A Fate for Fire Once more a monster moved through the night, a raging flame dragon ruled in darkness, fire-grim guardian of a great treasure mound. Beowulf. One. Dawn came then. Dark dragged its grey tail from sky's flat surface, and citizens woke to no blue summer. Their burning eyes opened on orange, an awful light. Fire breath blown from boreal blazing to west and north, wildfires ignited. On fume-drugged highways a car drives on, hours it has passed under this pall, flanked by fields enfolded in hills, high overhead on heaven's wide hill, the sun walks its way westward but its light casts no shadows. A lurid lens, smoke filter, saps color. Though green remains, virescent glow, weird, intense, world-end light. This haze comes harried over high mountains from swaths of forest, Scorched terrains, another year, the annual battle. Like the dragon disturbed in its treasured den that finds itself robbed and ravages forth again and again, unending rage. Now forests flare, season after season in summer heats, as continents consume themselves. The driver drives on through day-long dusk. Remote from here, across the Rockies, crews hack clearings in cruel heat. Trees are torches, terrible angels, crests of flame. This is crown fire, fastest, most fierce. Flames leap dangerous distances, devour timber. Balefire, beast-fanged, consumes creatures. Their corpses lie, chase victims, charred in smoke. Moose, mule deer, pine marten, bison, 
No creature outruns such enormity. We followed fire, we hominins, traced its quick brush of flame over savannah to feast on its sweet detritus, roasted meat from smaller creatures trapped by heat. Like nighthawks foraging in a dragon's wake, we were hunters of the burnt. We've had uh, wildfires here in Western Canada more and more seriously over the last decade. And that one poem section of the long poem that talks about the Fort McMurray fire, that was actually in 2016. And it was right after that that I was starting to figure out how I, I could put this together in some sort of um, poetic form. And the interesting thing to me now is that we had a couple of quiet years almost, lower forest fires around here. And I'm thinking, oh, it's going to seem like old news now. Um, and things are normal again. And then just the month that the book comes out, we have the start of these enormous fires all across Canada and the smoke being pushed down into the States. And, you know, I, I felt almost guilty as if somehow I'd brought this on myself. But, you know, we have actually this summer already burned twice as much, even, yeah, even more than twice as much um, forest as we've buried, burned in the, the, the worst forest fires of the past. And, you know, you can just feel it ramping up every year. The trouble is that that's such an important biome. So because it's practically on my doorstep, I don't live in the boreal, but we're just at the southern rim of it in, in my city, Edmonton. You know, you see the smoke, you're in the smoke, you you see the different colors of sunsets and sunrise, of strange ocular optical effects. And it brings things very close to home. Jesus, they were crazy in New York. That was very confronting to see. And I actually had to go, you know, I flew to like a, I had to go to an energy conference in Calgary, you know, and it was like after a few days, it was right during that time, basically. So it was a few days of just like awful, like, oh, cool. I'm glad I've got a bunch of N95 stocked up because I need to do this every time I leave the house. And, you know, my pregnant partner, like, absolutely isn't leaving the house, you know, um, and then to fly to Calgary and be like, oh shit, the air sucks here too. And then learning to like check, you know, I, I have the EPA Air Now app on my phone. And I check that every day, more or less. Um, every time it's the air smells a little off. That's going to get worse, although only up to a certain point because there's only a certain amount of forest fires uh, to burn. I, I remember being really surprised looking at actually some climate assessments. It's like actually like with global warming, like wildfires may end up declining because we're going to fucking burn all the trees. That sucks. Um, not all the trees, but, you know, in these wildfire prone regions. See, so you see this dynamic in California a little bit. Yeah, none of the models really predicted that it would happen so fast. This is actually everybody, I, the scientists are a little like, oh, it's here. It's here. You know, there, there was, you know, there's so many different models. There have been for, you know, 40 years of models of what would happen if this goes on. And then one day it's here. You know, then all of a sudden we are over the 350 carbon number uh, in the atmosphere and it's just all wildfire and floods and hurricanes, and it's here, you know. And uh, unbelievably, there's still deniers that this that this is that it's going that is that climate change is real. It's not just real; it's already here. And so, you know, there is no more there is no more opportunity for prevention. Um, that horse has left the barn, and so now it's just like mitigation. How do we, you know, keep the uh, the human suffering down and animal suffering. How do 
how do we survive? I mean, that's the, but the title of the the story collection is, you know, Highwire Act and Other Tales of Survival. It's like, how do we survive? And do we survive? It felt this year particularly apocalyptic. I mean, I, I flew back from doing some readings for the book from British Columbia. So you fly over the Rockies and down into central Alberta. And there was this sepia fog over the entire center of the province, like an enormous area. You can't imagine it. And you're flying down into this. And um, that was actually before the smoke hit the East Coast. But you felt as if something deeply disturbing was happening to the planet um, and to the whole, you know, up here, we're a little more aware that there's a lot of land that we depend on, whereas we're not, this city in particular, it's it's much smaller than a New York or the, the eastern seaboard. So you're more surrounded by by nature and by the impacts that, you know, an out-of-balance nature can have on you. Um, wildfires, I, I don't know much about how to stop that. It's a problem from hell because a lot of it is due, you know, in Hawaii, it looks like the wildfires there were probably due to um, the Hawaiian Electric Power uh, Utility System. Um, you know, and PG&E sparked a couple of the big wildfires in California. And it's like, our infrastructure is super old. That's the other thing we need to fix is helping us build stuff more easy. Um, a, a lot of people are beating that drum in America for a lot of different reasons, but we need to be able to build our infrastructure to kind of keep up both with defensive risks, um, you know, building flood infrastructure in New York. And, you know, every time, you know, and hey, it, it's going to change the city. Now, we'll hear another section of Alice Major's A Fate for Fire, paired with the track Black Thunder from John Atkinson's Energy Fields, followed by responses from Alice, Joanne, and John regarding the role of capitalism in the climate crisis. Three. Another summer of thirst season, Canada's west wilting, threatened, By the fire beast rampant, roused from sleep after dry winter. Droughts parched tongues sucking at soil. Spring too soon, too sudden hot. Streams sinking, roots wretched, rusted grass and brittle shrubs ready to burn. Such was the scene stretching beneath the helitac crew called to a blaze near Fort McMurray, city gripped in the fist of forest. Far north Alberta, oil-built town on the Athabasca. In former times, the first peoples knew bitumen seeped from the black banks, patched travel boats with its dark tar. Now hydraulic shovels and heavy haulers rip overburden from buried oil sand. Massive projects ring Murray, scrape the boreal down to its bones, jackpine and steep bank, the giant pits of Muskeg River, Mildred Lake, Horizon Mine. Heavy equipment patrols pit floors where old petroleum binds silica sand, a sticky sea where forest crowds construction camps and paychecks float on pipelines bait. The copter pilot keeps panic back as smoke columns swirl skyward, shouts through the roar of rotor blades, Whoa! This is bad. No one tree wonder to curb with their bucket. The canvas cistern slung below the chopper's stomach is less than a mouthful of meager spit at that fiery face. Fury has birthed itself, beast out of bondage, 
growing greedy. Winds gust, drive destruction to the city's door. Only nine miles off, in the angle of streams, the water web that weaves muskeg, hanging stone, horse river, saline creek, clear water. Homes cluster in the clutch of trees near a thin thread, a three hundred mile strand of asphalt, single escape route south to safety. Days of siege, then. The beast stretches paws into the city again and again. Embers swirl across Athabasca, astonishingly. The mile-wide river cannot repulse fire's weather wind. Its wings spread like a black bat's beast with a brain circling the city, seeking prey. A morning's respite, momentary. A crust of cold air contains the blaze. Blue sky, false calm. Birds know better, fly in a frenzy, fierce shrieks. Then citizens see the smoke wall shift, lean in on the town, a lowering tower, orange street ribcage. Orders at last, evacuate everyone. Ninety thousand now in flight, through the choked throat and thick smoke of that one road out, walls of fire on either hand, hell mile, hellscape, vehicles draining through a downpour of flame. Raining embers, the roaring lungs of flames fifty feet high, fireworks of dust. Scenes snatched from thick smoke beyond car windows, kids on horseback running their mounts to uncertain refuge past flame walls. Flash of police lights, cars stop. To scoop up dogs, load them aboard. Power lines erupt in sparks. Truck swirls to a stop at a burning fence. First blazing bite at a loved home. Heavy loader kicks into action, flattens the fence, races off, ripping respite from the beast's big mouth. Meanwhile, the monster makes its weather. Perilous updrafts lift pyrocumulus. That cloud fist, inferno's club, into the air. Arrow flickers of dry lightning, but no downpour follows. No rain relief. Only the roil of Thor's thunder thrashing the landscape with a hazardous hail. Hot ember seeds that sprout new shoots. Fire's spawn spreads ever further into green forest, and the long road logjammed with crawling trucks, creeping cars. Drivers gaze at dropping gauges, emptying tanks. How ironic! Stranded for fuel in forest terrain that floats on petroleum, this fragile thread, the one route out, the one-horsed engine of economy, all encircled by boreal forest designed to burn. Plants. Build their green bodies with carbon, and the planet hoards those bodies after death, in the clasp of oceans, in the stone sarcophagi layered over drained ancient seas, in stuck peat below permafrost. So the dragon holds its treasure to its chest. Capitalism 
in Canada is also capitalism as it is worldwide. It's one of those words we throw around a lot uh, without really thinking what we're saying. Um, and there's often this inchoate sense that it's a conspiracy, that it's something with a malign intelligence behind it. Really, it's just, not just, but it is this emergent system out of the millions, billions, trillions of transactions that are done around the world. So there's no country that's not capitalistic in a way, not using the behaviors and mechanisms of uh, structures like even the IMF or, or, or the international banking system. You can't get away from it. You know, capitalism are us. But the word does cover something else. Cap the ism in capitalism is a um, an intellectual framework, and it's it's been around for a couple of hundred years. And it at its roots, it was somewhat idealistic. It grew out of an the idea that we had to do something about this tiny aristocracy that controlled all the wealth and was comfortable, and this huge slog of peasant life that could just barely scrape through a day. And how could you create uh, and innovate more of butter or shoes or, or clothes or shelter that would raise people up, which at its beginnings is a very commendable motion, uh, emotion. We, we, we want a justness to our, our, our society. But the problem with the, the mathematics that developed and, and all the rest of it around capitalism, there was it was based on growth. You had to keep growing in order to keep this, this wheel moving and increasing affluence for everybody. And there's no concept of enough baked into capitalism. How can we incorporate or, or reframe it as not being constant growth, but being enough. And that's going to take some, um, I don't know what it's going to take, but we need to encourage a system that that in, provides incentives to observe limits. The growth idea is, is based on incentives to do more, do more, do more. How do we incentivize, horrible word, um, organizations, companies, corporate structures to say, oh, okay, this is enough. Rethinking that framework because it comes with a lot of math and a lot of old math that is sort of Newtonian equations. It hasn't caught up with complexity theory enough. It hasn't caught up with the, the physics of tipping points. It hasn't caught up with a whole bunch of other things that need to be integrated into our idea of the ideal way that money and transactions are carried out around the planet. Capitalism is, unless it changes its course in terms of just being totally dependent on consuming individual, um, you know, in, individuals consuming it, it capitalists can still work by feeding the economy by like in America, well, changing everything to public transportation. I mean, the absurdity that we all have to we have to have cars. I mean, that is just the, the worst planning ever. And that was a decision made by the U.S. government that these are decisions that were made. Um, you, you go to Europe, you can go anywhere by train. You can go to the, the smallest little village in the middle of nowhere, and you can get there by public transportation. You can't get anywhere in the U.S. in public transportation unless you're going up to major hubs. And even then, it's not, you know, it's just fair. Um, so, um, you know, these are decisions that, you know, that money that to fuel an economy can go towards the public good rather than individual wealth. And, you know, there's plenty of wonderful models out there in the world of countries that do that. And they're basically, uh, they're not socialist, I forget what they call themselves, but like the Swedens and the Norways and uh, a, a, a lot of Europe that is, um, you know, they pay extremely high taxes, but they get so much 
you know, they just get an enormous amount back, including education. Consumption isn't necessarily the problem. It's definitely part of the problem. We have too much shit in this country. We like are incredibly wasteful. And I, I mean, I will say like living in Australia for a few years, even all, I mean, Australia is hardly like um, the most environmentally aware kind of place, but, you know, uh, it's certainly in terms of energy efficiency, certainly in terms of um, just other aspects of being a little more in touch with nature. Australia kind of opened my eyes a bit to like how, uh, how just America, America is um, in those ways being very wasteful and all that. But um, yeah, philosophically, I just don't think that that is something that we can change. And thank God, I don't think it's something we need to change. It would, it would be helpful, I think, if you know more people could be more conscious of their consumption and their uh, you know wasteful, especially food waste is my big my big thing. You know, the amount of food waste in this country is absolutely criminal. I'm super psyched about the uh, compost uh, program that's rolling out in New York. They have these compost bins all over the place. Just came out a couple months ago. Big orange bins on the sidewalk, um, which I think is a really visible kind of reminder that helps people, helps connect people to their daily lives. Um, food is like that. The, on the energy side, you know, it's just a plug. You don't really notice, you don't know where the energy is coming from. Solar electrons are the same as coal electrons at the end of the day. Um, but the fact is, like, we're getting a lot more. Uh, in fact, I think solar and wind passed coal uh, this past year. We get more of our energy from that than coal, which is crazy. It's crazy how fast it's happening. People don't notice it, um, but it's it's truly remarkable. And the fact is, it's not about not making money. You know, these are companies that, you know, wind and solar are cheaper um, than fossil fuels in most cases, especially if you pair it with a battery because, yeah, you know, the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow all the time, yada, yada. But it, it's we're, it's really possible now for us to move towards a 80 to 100% renewable grid um, and save money, at least on the generation side. Um, and people make money on that. People of in America, you know, yes, we overconsume in a lot of ways, but we're also the most innovative country in the world. We're a country that was founded, you know, it's in our DNA to take risks, start new things. That's what, you know, uh, the America that we live in, you know, is structured by. Um, so even though <laughs> there are bad parts of the American kind of like way of life, for sure, and it would be helpful the more we can change that. Uh, that would that would help move things along even more quickly. And I think, you know, there's a lot happening there too. But we don't have to change who we are um, as a country for better and for worse. Like, we, we have what we need here to, um, I think, make the progress we need to make, to preserve. I think we're on track for, like, you know, a soft landing <laughs> for climate to some extent. It's going to be really hard, you know, and, and I, I definitely don't want to minimize how bad it's going to get, but it's not the end of the world. Definitely it's going to get worse before it gets better because there's a 50-year lag between the carbon in the atmosphere and the reaction to the planet. So we have not even seen yet the, the worst of the climate crisis. I mean, even if we stopped everything, all carbon today, um, there would still be from decades behind us that, that reaction to the climate. So there is no doubt it's going to get worse before it gets better because, again, that horse has already left the barn. Uh, there's been some science on that. that it, it actually seems a little less clear how much is baked in. I, I'm not a climate scientist. Um, I've read some hopeful things in the literature, or people writing about, some hopeful things about hopeful things in the literature, I'm not really reading primary sources, that we could slow this down more quickly than perhaps anticipated. Because yeah, CO2's lifespan in the atmosphere is like 100 years. Um, that said, methane emissions are, uh, you know, which are from 
gas, you know, leak, gas leaks, um, as well as agriculture, you know, food waste, uh, my favorite or least favorite, um, you know, a variety of sources like that. Methane uh, is accounts for like a quarter of the global warming today, and it it's like a 20-year lifespan. So if we can tackle methane, that's a high leverage point. If we can make faster progress on methane and the other um, super pollutants, um, you know, that could be like 0.5 degrees of kind of cutting warming, you know, that we're trying to get ahead of. So, and that, that would be quicker. So there are some opportunities to move more quickly than that. But Joanne's totally right in that it, things are getting at worse. And, and they're already, like, bad. I mean, and that's the other side of the coin. I think some people who are on my side of, you, you, know, the, you know, working in the energy industry, as you can hear, like, from all, you know, the rah-rah uh, stuff I'm saying, it's easy to be optimistic uh, when we see how much progress has been made and how fast it is and how it's faster than anyone thought possible and how awesome that is. Uh, I think there's a tendency for people on that side, myself included sometimes, to underrate, uh, you know, even, like, even if we were to limit it to 1.5 degrees, right, which is somehow the new, not somehow, became the new target. You know, Paris Agreement says, let's keep it well under two degrees. Uh, at some point in... Um, or in 2018, the IPCC released a report on the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees, which I think was kind of like, it was a really interesting, I think, post-traumatic reaction to the Trump election in the world of climate policy, where we moved the goal. We're like, oh, Trump's elected. We're going to move the goalpost up. We're going to aim for like an even more strict goal. So we're going to try for 1.5 now, which was, uh, I think, an interesting, yeah, like socio-political uh traumatic reaction that um, I think in some ways is maybe unhelpful because it was like it was already hard enough to get to the well under two and now it's like well if and then that's when you hear people say oh if we don't get to like net zero by like 2030 or something you know we're all gonna die you know the like the climate like we're gonna get past if we don't hit this 2030 goal that people have been talking about since 2018 we are gonna go past 1.5 degrees and um, guess what? Like we are going past 1.5 degrees almost without a doubt, and where that's it's going to be super shitty. I'm concerned, deeply concerned, and it seems as though everything I look at gives me another jolt of anxiety. You know, it had never occurred to me until probably a couple of weeks ago that there's a certain point of heat where plants can no longer photosynthesize. And, and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, even trees might not be able to cope with this, what we're doing. But at the same time, and, and in the book, I have a number of little poems called End Times. There was a point where I was going to call the book All the Apocalypses because it seemed like war and fire and everything else were, were steaming through it. But it's never end times. We never get off the hook like that. The, there is an individual end time for each of us. But that's not the end of time. This is an, we, we don't know all the consequences of what we've set in motion. But I believe, and maybe it is an article of belief rather than than logical, but I believe that the there between us and the planet we'll work it out. Um, we will have to adapt. The world is changing, but we're not we're not going to be down to the last person standing. We're not going to be. Um, on a bare Mars-like planet as a result. We, we will figure this out, but we do have to be more humble. And I, I guess one of the things I think we have to become is more consciously gardeners. We have been separated from the, the cycles of growth, the, the, the sense of what a biosystem is, a garden is, 
And a garden, garden's never a monoculture. It's a whole bunch of solutions to particular local problems. And I think that's what we need to get through this. Next is an excerpt from Joanne Hart's short story, Float, from High Wire Act. Her 2013 novel of the same name grew out of the short story, and this clip starts with the main character, Duncan Leyland, contemplating the words, God help us, written in the sand of a beach. As he's ruminating about his failing marriage and business, he makes slight changes to the message, first erasing the D and the us, leaving go help. This reading is paired with John Atkinson's Long Harbor, which was made from field recordings taken from the New York Harbor waterfront and traces the dialectic between the harbor and its human cohabitants over time. A bonus episode with the full story and track will be made available shortly to paid subscribers of Talking Writing's Substack. Following this excerpt is a short response from Joanne, followed by Alice Major's poem Earth's Gravity Field Detects Whistle in Caribbean Sea, set to John Atkinson's track Casper from Energy Fields, and then some final thoughts about what each artist is trying to express through making art about climate change. But that was not today's problem. His marriage would have to wait in a long line of tomorrow's problems because today he had to save his business. Seacrest was letting in water at every seam, and it was all his fault. He had aimed too high. He should have opted for the cheapest solution he could get away with two years ago when the EPA mandated the installation of pollution controls. But no, in the spirit of the careless prosperity of the times, he wandered off to where the woodbine twineth and borrowed too much money for a complete modernization of the plant making it as clean and tight as a toolbox. The banks were crazy to load him so much money. How much profit really could be had from fish waste? Seacrest, whose business was to process marine waste into feed and fertilizer, used to be known, along with all the other gurry or dehydration plants on the coast, as the smelly stepchild of Maine's fishing world. Now the renovated plant was almost odorless. The industry had come a long way since his great-great-grandfather, Lucius Leyland's time, when Gurry, the finny bones and entrails left over from cleaning the day's catch, was unceremoniously dumped into the harbor, only to wash up on shore later in the day. Lucius was originally from bustling New Bedford, but he dropped anchor in Port Ellery in the name of love for a local lass and soon saw wealth where others saw garbage. Using the money he'd raised touring the Midwest with a sawdust stuffed whale in a boxcar, he built a factory to dry and grind up the fish scraps for livestock feed. The first thing he processed was his whale. The pet food industry soon became a major buyer as well, and business boomed for over a century. But in the last few decades, they'd had to branch out just to keep up. His father developed their unique fish fertilizer, and more recently, Duncan had added kelp to the recipe after watching Cora gather seaweed from the beach for her garden. Kelp? He looked at Go Help then changed the H in help to a K and added an exclamation point. Go kelp, he shouted, then looked around, but there was no one to hear. Not even the gang of seagulls patrolling the water's edge had paused to consider his outburst. As was too often the case these days, his words only made sense to him. Go kelp could be the name of his new retail line of soil amendments if there was a future for them at all. Before the expensive renovations to the building, he'd always sold his fertilizer in barrels to companies who resold the powder in small bags under their own pricey labels. But as the bills came flooding in, some daft accountant said that the only way to recoup his capital expenditure was to leave the safe harbor of wholesale and set out into the deep waters of retail, which meant more money at the door. His marketing investment had been huge, and the product was still not launched. Worse, competition was darkening the sky. 
A dehyde down in Massachusetts had contracted with key fish processors for their waste and was already selling echo sludge directly to the planting public. Another company in northern Maine was peddling lobster shell dust and getting as much play in the gardening magazines as a dazzling new rose. He hadn't acted fast enough in making the transition. The words he'd overheard in a bar ten years ago, soon after he took his father's place at Seacrest, came back to him now. Duncan Leyland run a business? He couldn't run a bath. Oddly, there are often also models that show like the Gulf Stream, you know, the ocean streams that uh, throughout the world that, sh that control the climate, that there could be, um, th there could be so much uh, Arctic melting that it could change the Gulf Stream. And that w the Gulf Stream then would, would actually cause an ice age. I mean, there's so many different things that can happen, and that is, in fact, one of them, is a another ice age because so much cold water enters the uh, system that it changes the, the flow of hot water. Earth's gravity field detects whistle in Caribbean Sea. A massive current circles the Atlantic, like a clock hand sweeping round the dial. It's an inertial wave, traveling through the water's body, how the Coriolis force tries to restore balance to the disturbance caused by Earth's inexorable spinning. The current is propelled from the African coast to the Americas, and swirls back out from the Gulf of Mexico as the Gulf Stream. It redistributes the warmth of the tropics in an attempt to return the planet's climate to balance. In the stretch through the Caribbean Sea, where openings between brilliant islands rise from seafloor like holes in the body of a flute, the wave starts to hum a long, low note, slow, resonating pulses that human ears could never detect. But Earth's gravity field resonates in response. Sensitive instruments can record the wave peaks, recurring again and again around the dial of a year. Bleep, bleep, bleep. An SOS broadcast to the solar system. We need help here. Over. I've started writing, as you call it, like it's slightly in the future. Um, speculative fiction, it's not really science fiction, it's sort of speculative, you're speculating what's going to happen if this goes on, you know, what, and, and that's sort of where your one mind goes when you're, you know, you really enmeshed in it on the page, it's like, what's going to happen? You know, how do we get out of here? How do, you know, what, are there solutions or you know, uh, humans probably will not go extinct, but our civilizations are going to fall apart at some point if we can't turn this around. And what will those civilizations look like? So that's just something that uh, has been a gradual um, change in my writing. In writing, you're always making up a world. You're always creating a world in writing. Now, even if it was like a a hundred years ago, present day, or a hundred years from now, you are creating that world on the page. So this is just um, a, a different world. You know, it's like, you know, that's starting from scratch in your head. So it's also just a really good exercise to do, I think, for a writer is to just like, you know, create a world from scratch.
And I try, I do try to, um, in my stories, even in the future ones, especially the theories that I've been doing, to have a little bit more hope because, you know, nobody's going to want to read totally dystopian. You know, only your your teenage goth readers are, are going to want that because uh, we, we really have to, um, when writing about the climate, have to show what it's like for um, for people to live through it and then show how th- they solve problems. For me, when I'm writing, it's a way of getting beyond the news, getting beyond the the fear because one of the problems with us right now is we don't as humans we don't respond well to anxiety and fear what we do then is we get angry and we create more problems and we we turn our focus away from what the real problem is that requires joint action and joint solutions and and we we fight each other over things that shouldn't be fought over uh so I wanted very much to, while I was writing this, not fudge the facts, not not whitewash or or dismiss the fear, but to to really integrate it into the art. So, for me, poetry is first and foremost about sound, to create a sonic space where where these words come out and and are experienced by by a reader or a, a listener and create a dialogue about this very serious situation we're in. So the other thing for me is that I've always been fascinated by science. It's always found its way into my poetry. First of all, more as a, those kind of cool metaphors that would turn up from it. But more and more, I've realized that I want to understand the world. I want to understand the science of the world because that is a cumulative effort by humans over thousands and thousands of years. But there's been a lot happening uh, in science in the last while. And we are learning very interesting things about how we are integrated into this biosphere that humans are not separate from it, that we're not um, a new invention that was plunked down in some garden of Eden. We grew out of this, we need it, and we need a sustainable environment. I, I, I don't really like political music and I don't, especially don't really like stuff about climate change because it's really complicated. Like we're all implicated in this. To me, it's not like climate change isn't a story of how humans are bad. I can really relate to the idea of like, oh, you know, it's hard to change, but you can change as a person, right? Um, you, we can be more responsible and we're moving that way as a society. We've made incredible progress on a lot of environmental, you know, the air is a lot cleaner than it used to be. Water's a lot cleaner than it used to be. Sometimes there's two steps forward and one step back uh, in some cases, but, you know, we have made progress. We are making progress. And I don't, and to me, the energy system is just fucking awesome. It's so big. It's crazy what we can do, what we've done, the kind of modern civilization that we've built. Um, I, I think it's it's not hypocritical. I think it's just like boring to be like, oh, like we shouldn't have done all this, you know, because it's like, I don't know, we wouldn't be able to be talking about it the way we're talking about it if we hadn't done all this stuff. I try and just be forgiving towards people, forgiving towards the way that we consume optimistic about the way that we're making some progress and trying to get better and also just you know kind of like uh try and like engage in like you know five-year-old boy little boy mentality like look at the big trucks you know look at these big things you know it's just awesome the energy system's wild you know the energy fields album that i did uh you know now is during my residency out at the ucross foundation and i was out in uh, wyoming is you know where most of our coal comes from in america and seeing those coal uh mines and mining is a you know we think of mines i think is going down into the ground you know the west virginia appalachian kind of mines these are surface mines you know there's a saying in wyoming 
all you need to do to mine coal in Wyoming is like a nine iron. You know, it's right there under the surface. And these huge open pits are just like one of the wildest things I've ever seen. Um, and on one side, I'm like, you know, filled with horror, like, oh my gosh, like coal fucking sucks. Like this is killing people and it's like screwing, you know, the future of the planet for my kid. Uh, but then on the other hand, I'm like, this is incredible. Like the human ingenuity and innovation uh, at scale. And that's the same kind of energy that, well, you know, the same kind of like human capacity to like build shit and uh, innovate that I think is also being channeled in really wonderful, awesome directions today. And I want to make music that kind of just engages with, that, that shows that complexity of, of how I see things in this. So stuff that has both some doom in it, for sure, because like we, we have fucked up the planet. Bad things are happening. Bad things are going to keep happening. But at the same time, we're making progress and it's just the, the human story. And it's a story that is both, I think is very relatable on a personal level. It's very like tragic, but beautiful in another level. I love human beings. I love people trying to just, you know, build lives for themselves and their families and fossil fuels like are a big part of that story. And I'm not going to, you know, talk shit on that because that's how we got to where we are and it's how we're going to get to where we're going is by leveraging that modern civilization that is just utterly mind-blowing. So I want to approach it with a sense of awe and kind of ambiguity um, out of respect for the fact that we don't really know where this is going. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. Please subscribe to our Substack for bonus material and further access to the Talking Writing community. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the donate button on the rss.com page of this podcast or visit talkingwriting.com slash donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com.